poetry in 19th century America was very, very important. Um, and it has been likened by many to rock and roll for baby boomer Americans, a cultural touchstone that reached into every phase of American society. If the Ed Sullivan show had taken place in the 1860s rather than the 1960s, his A-list guests would have included Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He would have had John Greenleaf Whittier instead of Elvis. John Greenleaf Whittier would have shaken his hips. Oh, I'm sorry, Whittier was a Quaker, not a shaker. Um, but nonetheless, he would have been on the Ed Sullivan show. Hi, I'm Jonathan Eder, host of Seekers and Scholars. What you just heard was a clip from a 2007 Mary Baker Eddy Library program called Passion for Poetry, the importance of verse-making to 19th century America and Mary Baker Eddy. And yes, that was me giving an intro to that evening program from 13 years ago. For this episode of Seekers and Scholars, launching in December 2020, we thought we'd revisit some moments from that event as a way to embrace the holiday season with the festival of verse, commentary, and song that it included. We'll start by featuring the scripted performance that opened the Passion for Poetry program. In it, the guest panelists and library hosts gave readings to showcase the era's poetic voice in relation to Mary Baker Eddy's life story. You'll hear in order of appearance, Elisa Savitz, who was manager educational programs at the library as a narrator, then me, and the following panelists giving recitations. Paul Williams, professor emeritus in English from Principia College, Angela Sorby, professor of English at Marquette University, and Marion Carlson, co-author of American Genius, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. In 1821, when Mary Baker was born the youngest of six children in a hard-working farm family in New Hampshire, the United States was still in its birth throes. What it meant to be an American was still uncertain in many people's minds. In these early decades of the 19th century, Americans largely looked to Europe for their literary models. A favorite of Mary's and of many Americans was the Scottish poet Robert Burns, whose celebration of the common man appealed to American ideals of democracy and individual rights. Years later, Mary Baker Eddy would refer to Burns' celebrated poem, A Man's a Man for All That, in her major work, Science and Health. Is there for honest poverty that hangs his head and all that? The coward slave, we pass him by. We dare be poor for all that. For all that and all that, the rank is but the guinea's stamp, the man's the gold for all that. What though unhomely fare we dine, wear hot and gray and all that, give fools their silks and knaves their wine, a man's a man for all that. For all that and all that, their tinsel show and all that, the honest man, though e'er so poor, is king of men for all that. Then let us pray that come it may, and come it will, for all that, that sense and worth o'er all the earth shall bear thee grace and all that. For all that and all that, it's coming yet for all that, that man to man the world o'er shall brothers be for all that. Robert Burns. Like many girls of active intellect, young Mary Baker kept a journal or copybook as well as a scrapbook. In the scrapbook, she pasted many poems she had clipped from magazines and newspapers. In her copybooks, she recorded her own compositions as well as the poetry of others. 
She continued this practice into adulthood. In 1844, tragedy befell Mary when George Glubert, her husband of less than a year, died of yellow fever. The couple had only recently moved to the South, and Mary was very much on her own. It was during this time that she summoned courage for herself in these lines she penned in a poem she called Thoughts at a Grave, recorded in her copybook. Linger not here, thy holy trust severe. Thou mayst arouse the slumbering souls of men. Go forth and to thy duty once again. This is thy golden hour, ere fleeting life hath lost its power. Say unto youth, say to the hoary head, Prove faithful to the living as the dead. Mary Morse Glover. The ensuing decades were years of trial and searching for Mary, as well as for the United States. Even as the fledgling country descended into civil war, the words of poets such as James Russell Lowell, John Greenleaf Whittier, and especially Henry Wadsworth Longfellow were crucial in forging American values and identity. In the war's aftermath, their poems helped restore and heal the nation's spirit. This is from My Psalm by John Greenleaf Whittier. I mourn no more my vanished years beneath a tender rain, an April rain of smiles and tears. My heart is young again. The west winds blow and singing low, I hear the glad streams run. The windows of my soul I throw wide open to the sun. No longer forward, nor behind, I look in hope or fear, but grateful, take the good I find, the best of now and here. I plow no more a desert land to harvest weed and tear. The manna dropping from God's hand rebukes my painful care. I break my pilgrim's staff, I lay aside the toiling oar, the angel sought so far away is welcome at my door. And so the shadows fall apart, and so the west winds play, and all the windows of my heart I open to the day. Christmas Bells, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on their way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chance sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. 
1866, Mary experienced a healing that would change the course of her life and lead to her discovery of Christian science. In a document from the Mary Baker Eddy Library Archives, Mary Baker Eddy remembers this healing in the context of Longfellow's famous poem, A Psalm of Life. A change has come over the spirit of this dream. Life has grown real and earnest, and death is not its goal. In the language of Longfellow, it is this, that life is real. From a lifelong invalidism, the change to health and usefulness furnishes. This is the strong background of a beautiful picture in memory. It was the power of the divine mind to heal all manner of sickness. From the Mary Baker Eddy Collection. Life is real. Life is earnest. And the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. Longfellow, A Psalm of Life. In her later years, Mary Baker Eddy wrote poems that were eventually set to music and included in the Christian Science Hymnal. Although these works were often born out of her personal experience, its challenges and healings, trials and triumphs, they assumed a universal outlook and have been a source of inspiration to generations throughout the world. In her writings and publications, Mary Baker Eddy wrote mostly in prose, but in keeping with the spirit of her age and her own literary passion, she never lost her true love of verse. She once wrote of herself, from childhood I was a verse maker. Poetry suited my emotions better than prose. Christ, My Refuge by Mary Baker Eddy. O'er waiting harp strings of the mind, there sweeps a strain, low, sad, and sweet, whose measures bind the power of pain and wake a white-winged angel throng of thoughts, illumined by faith and breathed in raptured song with love perfumed. Then his unveiled sweet mercies show life's burdens light. I kiss the cross and wake to know a world more bright. And o'er earth's troubled angry sea, I see Christ walk and come to me and tenderly, divinely talk. Thus truth engrounds me on the rock upon life's shore, gainst which the winds and waves can shock, oh, nevermore. From tired joy and grief afar, and nearer thee, Father, where thine own children are, I love to be. My prayer, some daily good to do to thine, for thee, an offering pure of love, whereto God leadeth me. Well, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, Angela. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Self. And thank you all for... Uh, sharing with us this little journey into the spirit of uh, of, uh, of 19th century verse. At this point in the program, Professor Sorby, author of Schoolroom Poets, Childhood, Performance in the Place of American Poetry, 1865 to 1917, spoke about the significance of poetry as a social activity in 19th century America. I, I fixed on one quote from Mrs. Eddy, poetry suited my emotions better than prose. And I was reminded that this is pre-Oprah, but it's even pre-psychoanalysis. 
it's an era when people are not necessarily comfortable going on and on about their feelings in public. And I think that one of the reasons that poetry was so important to people is that it gave them a framework to articulate and to manage their tired joy and grief. It gave them a way to talk about feelings, not in the ways that we do when we share everything, but in a managed, in a managed, organized, expressive way that was fundamentally social. And this is, I think, one of the differences between the way poetry is tended to be used in the 21st century and how it was used in the 19th. It was a social medium. People recited poetry to each other. They learned poetry together. And the first place that most people encountered poetry was in the schoolroom. And indeed, my book, Schoolroom Poets, um, addressed that very issue. Scholars of Henry Longfellow and John Greenleaf Whittier kind of allowed these poets to go out of fashion for a while in the wake of the modernist aesthetic. And one of the things that scholars would say about poets like Longfellow is that they're didactic, they're preaching. And I wanted to kind of turn that on its head and think maybe they're not so much didactic as they're pedagogical. They're setting up poetry to be a source of teaching and learning, a way to transmit values ideas, and especially feelings across the generations. So poetry's social function was to imbue values with feelings, and not just private feelings, but shared feelings that groups of people could fix on together. So poetry was a public medium. When people learned to read poetry in schools, they were learning to read aloud. When people were said to be learning to read, they weren't just learning their ABCs, but they were learning the rules of rhetoric. Now, millions of American children learn to read with this book. This is the McGuffey's Reader, and over a million copies were in print, and just think, this is the 19th century, there's barely a million people in the United States. Um, a million copies of these are in print, and they're going through multiple generations of kids. Um, there are very few surviving McGuffey readers from the 19th century because they were used to shreds by the kids. And I'm just going to read you the very first page of the McGuffey's because I think it, it emphasizes the importance of public reading and recitation in the 19th century. Number one, preliminary remarks. The great object to be accomplished in reading as a rhetorical exercise is to convey to the hearer fully and clearly the ideas and feelings of the writer. In order to do this, it is necessary that a selection should be carefully studied by the pupil before he attempts to read it. In accordance with this view, a preliminary rule of importance is the following, rule one. Before attempting to read a lesson, the learner should make himself fully acquainted with the subject as treated in that lesson and endeavor to make the thought and feeling and sentiments of the writer his own. So you can hear in that rule the teaching of empathy and the teaching of identification between people. Poetry in the 19th century, except for maybe Poe, um, was not an alienated art form, you know, for people scribbling in attics. It was something that, that was really about socialization and about people coming together and empathizing with one another. 
So poetry was an intellectual exercise, but it was more than that. It was an exercise for the whole body. You learned to breathe, you learned to speak. It was an exercise for the emotions. You learned to express yourself. And it was an exercise in empathy and in social goodwill. Pedagogical poetry also helped with the task of nation building. And I think this speaks to particularly Longfellow and poems like Listen, My Children, and You Shall Hear of the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. Everybody knew that poem. It's something that you can't forget once you learn it. And this leads us to the importance of memory in 19th century poetry. People memorized poems. We're not exemplars of that here tonight. We read our poems. <laughs> but had we been 19th century people, we would have known them by heart. And memorized poems were important to people because they became emblems of people's childhood in particular. Most people, they were busy as adults. Most people learned their cache of poetry in childhood. And then for the rest of their life, when they needed to, they could draw on those poems and, and speak them. So the poems became a way to remember the past and not just an individual past, but a collective past because most kids that had been to public school in America knew the same 15 or 20 poems, including works like Paul Revere's Ride or The Barefoot Boy by John Greenleaf Whittier. And so I guess my final point, since we've sort of talked about how then poems were like pop songs, they were memory triggers for people, and they helped people fill in the blanks within the poem with their own emotions and memories. They worked in a way like pop songs, but I think that they were also different in some ways than the Beatles or Elvis and those uh, pop songs that spark memories in so many people. Because people memorized and recited these poems and cut them out of magazines and pasted them into their own little scrapbooks, and Eddie did this and so did most young girls in the 19th century, because people engaged with poetry on such a tactile level, I think they really made it their own. It wasn't just a matter of sitting back and listening to a poem. You listened to a poem, you learned it, you internalized it. Even the phrase, knowing something by heart, implies that it's part of you and it's inside of you. And so people had a very visceral and personal and long-standing relationship to the poems that they knew by heart in the 19th century. And then we heard a portrayal of the life and work of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow from author and historian Marion Carlson. A professor, a translator, a scholar, America's storyteller, citizen of the world, poet of the people, Longfellow, by any name, was all of these and more. His life was so epic in nature that tonight I wish to concentrate just on three questions pertaining to his rich story. One, what was the origin of his passion for poetry? Two, what personal qualities were the basis of his writing? Three, what connections and similarities existed between him and Mary Baker Eddy? First, Longfellow's boundless enthusiasm for storytelling and poetry began in his childhood. He listened to stories about his Puritan ancestors going back to Priscilla and John Alden and about his grandfather's adventures as a general fighting with Washington's army. 
His mother, Zilpa, encouraged his reading of all the great literature and poetry. By the time he was a teenager, he had a passion for his ideal career. Writing to his father from Bowdoin College, nearing graduation at age 18, he announced, I most eagerly aspire after future eminence in literature. My whole soul burns most ardently for it, and every earthly thought centers on it. Young Longfellow traveled extensively through Europe, learning to speak eight languages and read and write twelve. This fueled his passion for poetry, along with his early publishing success. Through his study and translation of European literature, he became convinced that America needed its own literary traditions. The master storyteller gave us vivid characters that forged America's identity. Verses such as, Listen, my children, and you shall hear, from Paul Revere's ride, portrayed a brave patriotic hero during the Revolutionary War. As the clouds of the Civil War gathered in 1860, it was published in the Atlantic Monthly, a literary magazine founded by Longfellow and his friends in 18. 57. This is the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the hemlocks. John Greenleaf Whittier praised Longfellow's Evangeline. Eureka, here we have it at last, an American poem, with the lack of which British reviewers have so long reproached us. By the shores of Gichigumi, by the shining big sea water, Hiawatha celebrated Native American culture with a moral message during a time when their culture was rapidly disappearing. These beloved poems have been repeated and quoted for more than a century. Paul Revere, Hiawatha, Evangeline, Priscilla and John Alden, Miles Standish, the village blacksmith. These became American heroines and heroes. What personal qualities were the basis of his writing? He was brought up in a loving home to be fair and honest. The uplifting ethical qualities that the extremely accomplished Longfellow expressed as a person are found in his poems. They often included positive, inspiring, spiritual views on many core themes. Courage in the face of adversity. Hard work bring steady progress, a love of America, the wonderful nature of children, the exceptional qualities of women, the goodness and equality of mankind. Longfellow championed multiculturalism before that term was invented. Finally, what connections and similarities existed between Longfellow and Mary Baker Eddy? They were both greatly influenced by the good qualities of their mothers and their home lives as children. A deep love of mankind, a talent for poetry, and many shared values, such as success in life depends upon persistent effort and hard work. These made Longfellow and Mrs. Eddy kindred spirits. A psalm of life treasured by Mrs. Eddy 
was the poem that made Longfellow famous in 1838. At the time, Longfellow broke the ice of poet William Cullen Bryant's The Popular Thanatopsis, A Psalm of Death, by celebrating life. Trust no future, however pleasant. Let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present, heart within, in God or head. The poem goes on. Lies of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. The ending is a call to action. Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. This last verse was directly quoted by Mrs. Eddy in her article, Improve Your Time. As mentioned, she was a great fan of the poet and collected his verses in scrapbooks. Mrs. Eddy used a Longfellow verse on the cover of the Christian Science Sentinel. The Atlantic Monthly's first issue of Longfellow's poem, Santa Philomena, which first immortalized Florence Nightingale as the lady with the lamp. Mrs. Eddy found the poem from a clipping that she had made from that first 1857 issue and put in one of her scrapbooks. And nearly 50 years later, she wrote to the editor of the Sentinel and asked for this verse from Santa Philomena to be used and illustrated on the cover. A lady with a lamp shall stand in the great history of the land, a noble type of good, heroic womanhood. This remained part of the design of the Sentinel for many decades. Caramos, published in 1878, is like a bookend to Longfellow's beautiful A Psalm of Life, written 40 years earlier. The potter offers a timeless message. Turn, turn, my wheel, the human race of every tongue, of every place, Caucasian, Coptic, or Malay, all that inhabits this great earth, whatever be their rank or worth, are kindred and allied by birth and made of the same clay. Mrs. Eddy wrote in Science and Health, One infinite God good unifies men and nations, constitutes the brotherhood of man. In 1908, Mrs. Eddy joined a list of carefully selected regions donating funds to help erect a statue of Longfellow in Washington, D.C. President Theodore Roosevelt wrote in a letter, in building a monument to Longfellow, you honor one of the greatest of American poets. His writings are not only for us, but for all mankind. At this juncture in the program, our final panelist, literary scholar Paul Williams, considered the properties of Mary Baker Eddy's poetry through a comparison with the work of Emily Dickinson. Mrs. Eddy was a person of ideas who wrote poems, unlike Emily Dickinson, who was basically a poet who had ideas. But in a way, these two women have resemblances, and I think we can see some of it in the way they, you might say, kick against the pricks of the old forms of poetry. Both of them essentially wrote things that were 
hymns in form. And Emily Dickinson changed the rhymes to be slant rhymes or off rhymes and produced something quite new and modern. And Mrs. Eddy did some things too. Four of her seven hymns have enjambed stanzas, that is, stanzas that do not end in a period. One ends in a semicolon, the other three in commas, and go on to the next stanza. They're the only hymns in the Christian Science Hymnal that do that. <laughs> I find that quite remarkable. <laughs> and it shows a certain latent modernism in her. Another modernism they shared is what I call elision, that is, in which you put in a line that's more brief than, in essence, it ought to be. It doesn't say the whole story. For example, Emily Dickinson speaks of being a hay, by which she means a stalk of hay, you know. But she doesn't put that all in. And in her poems, Mrs. Eddy has a poem called Nevermore. That's a famous line, isn't it, from Edgar Allan Poe. Anyway, the last stanza of this reads, Nevermore reaping the harvest we deem, evermore gathering in woe. Say, are the sheaves and the gladness a dream? Or to the patient who sow? Now, that last line is just sort of hanging on there. You know, what on earth does that mean? It gains a meaning if you supply these words she has elided. I think if you say, say, are the sheaves and the gladness a dream? Or are they the outcome of the patient who sowed the seed in the first place? Then it makes sense, doesn't it? I find that a modernism that is in both of these poets, but I would not claim Mrs. Eddy to be a modern poet. She's a very vital poet, and I think the other poem I read, Christ My Refuge, is a great poem. I really do. It has wonderful things in it. And uh, she's given us a lot of interesting poetry. Her poetry tends to show her emotional concerns more than her prose does. But it has that other side. It always comes back to how does God fit into this picture the evening concluded with musical performance of Longfellow's A Psalm of Life, preceded by recitation of the lyrics. We have with us two acclaimed musicians from the Boston area, Brett Johnson, baritone, and accompanying him on piano, Eric Haneke. Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream, for the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. Not enjoyment and not sorrow is our destined end or way, but to act that each tomorrow find us farther than today. Art is long, and time is fleeting, and our hearts, though stout and brave, still, like muffled drums, are beating funeral marches toward the grave. In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb, driven cattle, be a hero from the strife. Trust no future, how air pleasant. 
Let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present, heart within and God o'erhead. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime. And departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another, sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, seeing, shall take heart again. Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing. Learn to labor and to wait. Tell me not in mournful numbers Life is but an empty dream For the soul is dead that slumbers And things are not what they seem Life is real, life is earnest And the grave is not its goal Dust thou art, to dust returnest Was not spoken of the soul Not enjoyment and not sorrow Is our destined end or way But to act that each tomorrow Find us farther than today. Art is long and time is fleeting, and our hearts, though stout and brave, still like muffled drums are beating funeral marches. In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb-driven cattle, be a hero in the strife. Trust no future, however pleasant, let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present, heart within and God o'erhead. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time footprints that perhaps another sailing o'er life's solemn
shall take heart again. Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing. Learn to labor and to Thank you for listening to this special holiday episode of Seekers and Scholars. With its spirit in mind, here at the Mary Bickerty Library, we would like to wish you all a wondrous psalm of life for this and every month. If you would like to listen to the full recording of the 2007 Mary Bickerty Library program from which we developed this episode, you can find Passion for Poetry, the importance of verse-making to 19th century America and Mary Baker Eddy on the library's website or through a link in the episode descriptor. We hope you'll join us for our next episode as we explore with Mary Baker Eddy Library staff their experience in giving papers at the 2020 Annual Meeting of the American Academy of Religion and Society of Biblical Literature. As always, we invite you to be in touch with us at podcasts at mbelibrary.org with any comments, questions, and thoughts you may have about the podcast. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library, copyright 2020.